This week that we are spending time together is so rich, it's so full. I haven't been at a a loving-kindness retreat for about three years, and I'd actually forgotten the what starts to happen as the days go on and um, it's the richness of this practice. So far we've, of course, we've started with metta. We've been introduced to the practice of metta. We also were introduced to the compassion today, to the mudita, the sympathetic joy. And tonight I want to talk about the fourth Brahma-vihara of equanimity, upeka. And I really wanted to talk about this particular Brahma-vihara because it is really my most beloved one and the one that I, in the most recent years, have practiced most uh, completely. And I want to tell you a little bit about why that is and uh, my reflections on equanimity. And to begin, I would just like to uh, share with you the phrase that I use for equanimity And I think it might help us begin to reflect on uh, this the state of mind that arises as we enter into equanimity. So the the phrase that I use when I do equanimity practice is this. No matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Just to take that in for a minute. No matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And I hope you have a chance to feel into that as I talk with you this evening, because I find that the words themselves have a way of working with the mind so that it gets a little bit shaken up. Things are as they are. What happens for me as I say those phrases that I see that it really does cause me to breathe and there's a letting go that occurs. I just kind of breathe in and I let go. I release the holding and the contraction that I might be feeling in myself when I want things to be otherwise. No matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. I think for many of us, we find ourselves really being very demanding on life. We want things to be a particular way. Maybe not all the time, but many times, particularly when certain events arise in our life, around the the four great cycles of birth, sickness, aging, and death, which we're all part of, we find ourselves feeling very helpless and very vulnerable in the face of life's events. Life is not often the way we want it to be, or things aren't going the way we want them to go. I I have this cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes that I, I just love to sometimes share on retreats, and maybe some of you have heard me share it, but I think it so much um, exemplifies this very kind of demanding attitude that we bring to our lives. So Calvin, you know, cute little Calvin, who's just always going through something. Um, This is not with his uh, friend Hobbes. This is just Calvin. 
he's kind of standing there and he's feeling, he's looking really grumpy. And he says, if I was in charge, we'd never see grass between October and May. And then he looks up and he shouts, on three, ready? One, two, three, snow. (laughs) He puts his arms out, snow. And then he waits for a minute. And then nothing happens. He says, I said snow, come on, snow, snow. And then he goes around, beats his uh, hands on the ground. And he says, okay, then don't snow. See what I care. I like this weather. Let's have it forever. And then he looks up again, and he puts his hands in prayer, and he squeezes as hard as he can, and he says, please, Snow, please, just a foot. Okay, eight inches, that's all. Come on, six inches even. How about just six? And we find ourselves doing that. And then he stands there, I'm waiting. And then he's running around in a circle going, ah, he's really getting upset and throwing a temper tantrum because it's not happening. And then he's just standing there completely exhausted. His little tongue is hanging out. And then he tries one more time, and he looks up and he says, Do you want me to become an atheist? (laughs) So we'll try many, many different strategies. We have our bargaining, our praying, different things that we we try to get things to happen the way we want them to. But a lot of times we feel the helplessness and we feel out of control. I think the equanimity phrase, when I say the equanimity phrase, it invites me to just stop for a minute and be quiet. Like, just be quiet. Things are as they are. To stop resisting, stop reacting, and letting things be. It's very much like what we are invited to do through our mindfulness practice. Just let things be as they are. And it invites us, the equanimity invites us to practice the patience that Sally talked so beautifully about last night. To slow down and be patient. And it invites us to be accepting of the way things are. In fact, I think equanimity practice actually begins with acceptance. As I think all spiritual practices in all spiritual traditions begin with this acceptance And when we talk about acceptance, we're not talking about a passive acceptance where we can just get resigned to the way things are and say, oh, well, that's the way it is. What can I do anyhow? It's not that kind of acceptance. But true acceptance actually is active. It has vitality in it. I think that true acceptance says, I accept because it's happening. I accept this because it's happening. We don't deny that it's happening or pretend that it's not happening or, or resign ourselves to the fact that it's happening, but it's happening. That's the truth, the reality. So I accept it. I open to it. I allow it. And I don't accept it for any other reason besides that it's happening. I don't accept that it because it's right or that it's wrong. I just accept it because it's happening. Truly, when we look with wisdom at the events in our lives, we might really see that nothing can be different in this moment than it is. Nothing really can be different. Nothing can be done to change this instant 
just the way it is. I'm not talking about the next instant, just this one. Just the way that this instant is coming together right now with all of us sitting here in the room, me sitting up here talking, the words flowing out of my mouth. This is just happening. Nothing really can... I can't do anything really to start to change the words. They're just kind of coming out in this instant. And that's because this moment, this present moment, is determined by all the things that have gone before. The words that I'm saying now are dependent on the words that I've said before so that it has some sense, it makes some meaning. Whatever is happening right now are momentary conditions coming together due to and influenced by conditions that have happened in the past. And our life ebbs and flows in this way. This is called the fancy word in the Buddhist tradition of the law of dependent origination. It's the Buddha's unique insight which says simply, this happens because of that. This happens because of that. For example... The food that we had for lunch when it landed on the table for you to receive today. There were certain conditions that came together in the kitchen, particularly the cooks, the food that was in the kitchen, the energy of the cooks, the timing, the food that was delivered. We could keep going back and back. They ordered the food beforehand. They had thought about the menus. The food was in the warehouses, it was grown in the fields, the sun, the rain, the soil. All those conditions come together to bring us the food that landed on the table in that instant. That happened because of the previous conditions. Your mind state that you might have at any given time during this retreat, it arises because of certain conditions. If you're feeling... Say you went to bed really late one night, you wanted to see what it was like to sit up late in the hall and listen to the stillness and walk and see the stars and the moon, and you didn't get to bed till about 2, but then you decided that you still wanted to get up for the uh, 5.45, 6 o'clock sitting. It's likely that you might feel a little bit tired. You know, that condition of feeling tired at 6 o'clock is going to be somewhat dependent on what time you went to bed and how you're feeling and all of those different factors. But not necessarily, because there's many, many factors that influence what happens. But everything influences everything else. So we cannot change or control the circumstances of this instant right now because of all the conditions that are flowing but we might be able to have some influence, some effect on what happens next if we bring wisdom and clarity and understanding to the events of our life. So we're asked to reflect on this with wisdom. And when we can feel into this, when we start to feel into this, which isn't necessarily something that you may be able to do right now, but it's one of the reflections that we do in our practice. We feel into how all conditions are dependent on all the other conditions. When we can feel into that, that we can't really change this instant, we might ask ourselves, then 
why am I reacting to this instant? Why am I struggling? Why am I resisting? Why am I fighting with the way things are in this moment? Usually, it's because we don't like what's happening when it arises. That's one. Or we find that we don't want to suffer. You know, we don't want to feel the suffering. We don't want to feel the pain. Or we don't want to see others suffer. We don't want to see suffering around us. And just as often, it's just a habit. That reactivity, that not liking, wanting things to be different, it's just a habit that we've got into through our lives or the way that we are in our lives. And we don't have enough wisdom and insight to really cut through that pattern of reactivity to see that it, in some ways, doesn't make sense. It's not the time to be reacting. It's the time to be reflecting. It's the time to be wise about how we're uh, responding to this moment. What the Buddha pointed out was that this habit of resistance and reactivity that we bring to the moment is actually the causing of the suffering itself. We're actually increasing our suffering as we react, as we resist. But we actually, there's some way that we think that if I struggle enough or react enough or get upset enough or try to manipulate the situation enough, it'll change without actually seeing that the very thing we're trying to do is get rid of the pain and the suffering and we're actually just creating more for ourselves. And the suffering arises out of our attachment, our demand for things to be otherwise. Attaching on, investing on to how we want things to be. This is the cause of our suffering, wanting things to be otherwise. If we're, if we're feeling a lot of suffering, then there's a lot of attachment. If we're feeling a little bit of suffering, then there's a little bit of attachment. And if we're not feeling any suffering, then right then there isn't any attachment in that moment. So if we are suffering in any given moment, and the practice that I did, too, was just to ask myself, What am I not accepting right now? What am I holding on to? What am I attached to in this moment? Because if there's some suffering, there's some attachment. And I can reflect in that way. These teachings show us the way to open to life within the whole continuum of pleasure and pain. Our experiences that we have are are along that entire continuum from extreme pleasure all the way to extreme pain. And these teachings that we're receiving empower us to face the painful aspect of life without drowning in sorrow and aversion. These teachings empower us to face the pleasant, even the most exalted experiences, without being lost in craving and attachment not to turn away or to hold on, but to allow things to be as they are. You might hear how where the mindfulness teachings come in. We're really pointing to the equanimity in our mindfulness, to let things be as they are, allow things to be as they are. In this way, we do develop the mind of equanimity, which is 
an unconditional allowing of things as they are, where we're not caught in the reactivity for something or against something. This is the equanimity. We're not caught in that for and against, for and against. I wanted to read you a verse from, um, it's called The Verses on the Faith Mind, from the Third Zen Patriarch. And this is translated from the Chinese. I understand that these are the only words that this patriarch ever spoke. And they're in this little book. And <laughs> and just before I started the talk, Sylvia leaned over and she saw the little book. She said, you know, I've been carrying this, the copy of this little book in my purse since 1977. I said, 25 years. I was given this book in 1980. So three years later, I've, I've been carrying this book for 22 years. And it's interesting. I looked at the back and it said... Um, for additional copies, please send uh, with return postage plus 15 cents to this person. 15 cents, that was cheap in those days. And this is the sixth printing in the summer of 1980. And I actually got this from Ramdas, who was passing out these little books back then. So he says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. That line in itself could keep us going. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. Just that. Make the smallest distinction and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. For and against. Another little tiny bit of what he says. He says, The way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. So equanimity points to that very activity of mind where we're rejecting and accepting, pushing and pulling, manipulating, wanting, wanting things to be the way I want them to be. Rather than learning the ability to let go. I want to tell you now why the equanimity practice is my most beloved practice. In 1987, as some of you already know, I, went, I was invited to go to India for the first time. That was about 15 years ago. And that began my karmic relationship that actively Uh, stayed alive for 15 years. Fortunately, it's over because I'm not going back anymore, and I'm totally relieved. (laughs) Because I went back every winter for for two or three or four months. And uh, I think that 
if I didn't have the equanimity practice, I'm not sure I would have survived. Um, From the very beginning, India just ripped me apart in every way that was possible. And some of you who may have been there or have spent time there, you know that India bombards the sense doors on every level of that continuum of extreme pain and extreme pleasure. And when I went, I had you know, spent 30 years developing strategies to keep my heart you know, very uh, nice and safe and, and closed and so I could function pretty well in the, in the world. And it was, none of my strategies worked. Nothing. Mother India just wouldn't let me keep my heart closed anymore. So the only way I really could survive there was by doing the equanimity practice. And I used it regularly, and not necessarily in a formal way where I sat down and crossed my legs and repeated the phrases, but more just as I was going through the day and would be encountering different, different um, sights, sounds, tastes, and smells, and touches, and just keep working with the equanimity phrase there. I remember um, right when I first arrived that I was teaching there every winter with uh, Christopher Titmus in Bodh Gaya, uh, the place where the Buddha was enlightened uh, over 2,500 years ago. And we were in the Thai temple, which wasn't very far away from the tree, and would teach a 21-day uh, retreat, a three-week retreat there every winter. And so the very, very first, I think I was there for about two weeks for the very first time, one of the questions that were asked in the hall of me when I was doing the Q&A was from a woman saying, how do you deal with all the suffering that is here? And I, I, I was so kind of surprised by the question because I had absolutely no idea how to deal with the suffering that was around. And I said something, and later Christopher, who was um, uh, uh, my colleague giving me some feedback, said, you did really well with the questions, but the one on the suffering in India need a little bit more time here. You know, to really kind of understand how to work with that. And I realized just how much out of my league I was. Bodhgaya is the poorest state in India. And I had never encountered so much suffering and so much beauty at the same time you know, along that continuum. And I really didn't know at all whether my heart would be able to bear the extremes of the things I was experiencing. The beggar children come from outside the, of the town, out from all the outlying villages, to beg for money. But the money that they're collecting goes to one man, one person who's kind of in charge of all the beggar children, and collects their money at the end of the day for himself, and then gives these children a little bit of food um, so that they can have some food for the day. There is long lines of beggars that come out uh, every now and then of all ages because there are often many rich Thai visitors who come and drop money in their bowls, and so they line up for that. And sometimes they might give them blankets, too, if they're, if they're lucky that day. There are often many corpses carried through the villages because that's how they sell, they uh, um, pay homage to the dead. 
I certainly saw my first corpses there in India. And they are also lying by the side of the road sometimes, and they are, the bodies are being burnt in the burning ghats, in the cremation sites. Sick and deformed people walking all around the streets. Just the colors, the smells, the, the heat, the f- spicy food, everything is like a complete bombardment on the senses, on the soul. It's like how, how do you stay open? How do you stay connected? How, how to allow uh, my, how do I allow myself? How do you allow yourself to stay engaged with all that's happening there? The blaring loudspeakers that they love in India that are going most of the time, and it's really a communal event. People are really happy that somebody puts on the music, the Hindi um, uh, uh, movie theater music, um, and everybody's happy that it's playing so loud and blaring and kind of staticky over the loudspeakers. We had um, a retreat one year where they had one of these loudspeakers going mostly for the whole retreat. And the temple is a little bit of a distance, maybe from here, the um, closer from the dorms where the road is. And there was a, a lot of pilgrims going by this. It's particularly time because there's a lot of pujas, a lot of blessings happening in January. There's a, probably about... 20,000 or 30,000 people in a tiny little village. And so it's very, um, uh, <laughs> very busy. And so there was this one loudspeaker that was going, that was in Tibetan. And it would just kind of sound something like this. <laughs> and then it would stop. And then it would kind of go, <laughs> and then go, because it was a little bit broken on the tape, and then go, blah, 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 then, <laughs> and that went on probably for three or four hours every day <laughs> while we were doing our retreat, while we were meditating. And it was very loud over the side. Later, we found out what it, they were actually saying, and they were, I mean, every now and then you hear kind of Kathmandu or something like that, and, and we found out that it was an advertisement to get people to go on this bus trip to Kathmandu, you know, and for the, for the Tibetan pilgrims that were there. And that's not untypical at all. I heard that last year there was a carnival that was set up next to the temple, and there were loudspeakers and this music from the merry-go-round. Everything was going on, mostly through the whole retreat. So um, people who haven't practiced in Asia <laughs> don't really know how sublime the conditions are here for practice. <laughs> and yet, I wonder if the conditions there in India or in Asia actually aren't really suitable for us to look at ways that we are very attached to our comfort, to our uh, having our environment very soothing, very peaceful, uh, under our control. Mm-hmm. It's completely out of control. Everything's out of control. So my practice, things are as they are. Things are as they are. As much as I would like things to be otherwise, <laughs> things are, are as they are. And to not just say it, but to feel it. To try to come into the place where I would stop 
getting angry. I would stop getting frustrated. I would stop reacting to it. And I mean, not that it necessarily worked all the time, but yet there was some practice that I could fall back on. There was one fellow, a little family, who was our kind of always, they were right outside the gate, the, the gate of the temple. And they were, he was our chai walla, the man who made our chai, our tea. And his name was Ram, and he had a son. And then his son came on over the years and started helping with the tea. And uh, got very close to him and his family. His, he had his wife, but the women don't come into the village, so his wife stayed at home. So I got to know Ram and his son pretty well. His son was about 18, and because there were a lot of Westerners coming, he was starting to learn some English, which was, he was illiterate, but it was really wonderful that he was starting to pick up some English so he could actually communicate with some of the Westerners. So each year he knew a little bit more English, so one year I could actually start to talk to him a little bit about his life. And so I, I was just curious one day what he ate through the day. And so he was able to actually, just in his very, very broken English and just with a little bit of uh, vocabulary, he was able to tell me that for breakfast they had um, uh, two chapatis, just a a wheat, uh, flat wheat bread, with a little bit of tea with no milk because milk was too expensive. And then for lunch they had a little bit of rice, um, uh, and if they were very fortunate, maybe... one little tiny vegetable and another chapati. And then for dinner, um, they had another chapati and some tea. And that was, if they, the most important thing for them was to have their rice through the day uh, at at the main meal because that's really what they depended on. And I remember when I was having that conversation with him, I was just feeling the world of difference between us. It's like, why is Sanjay, his name is Sanjay, why is Sanjay in the predicament where this is his life and I'm sitting over here, I, I'm, I'm, I have so much abundance and wealth in my life and I don't have that issue, I don't have that. What is it? What brings that? Why him and not me? Why is he having to Oh, work so hard for just a little bit of rice and wheat and can't afford milk and can hardly afford vegetables, but I'm eating so well and so abundantly. I would reflect on that. What, what is it? And I know that I can't come up with an answer. And I think when we start really opening and, and, and accepting the way things are, what we touch is that things, the, the reason why things happen is just much more mysterious than we could possibly ever know. We, 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 can't, we, we can't find reasons. And we start to touch into the great mystery of things. And as we feel into the mystery, what is, what is, what is released is our compassion, is our love, because it's just, There's nowhere for the mind to go. There's nothing to do with it. When I let go of my anger, when I let go of my reactivity around this, I can be in awe of this mystery, and my mind can become still and unmoving. 
This is touching the equanimity. And equanimity has all the warmth and the love of metta and compassion and joy, but it also has the balance, the wisdom, and the understanding that things are the way they are, that I cannot control somebody else's happiness. I cannot control somebody else's happiness. And it is this understanding that enters into what is the classical phrase for the equanimity practice, the one that we will offer you uh, tomorrow. The classical phrase is a little, not quite as simple as the one that I used. The classical phrase is, all beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. I'll say that again. All beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. Where does that go in your mind? I think this is not so easy to understand. And it's still, for myself, I'm still deepening into the reflection so that I can continue to understand it. And it is said, when we start to talk about karma, it's, it's said that the law of karma is so profound that it is one of the unfathom, it is, it is, it is one of the unfathomables, is that the mind can't even comprehend. It's unfathomable to anyone who does not have the mind of a Buddha. It's like to really understand and comprehend the law of karma. You need to have the mind of a Buddha. We'll talk a little bit, though, about that phrase, all beings are the owners of their karma. It means that karma is our only true property. It's really the only thing that we truly own. It's right at the end of the metta chant that we're chanting. It says, you are the owner of your true property. Karma is your true property. The only thing we truly own in this life and take with us when we die. Some believe, some people believe, that we carry our karma with us from life to life. That's something that, there's a thread of that from life to life. And what is going to make a difference in somebody's life, this is the karma, what's going to make a difference in somebody's life is whether, what's going to make a difference in whether someone is happy or not in their life is determined by the way they live their life. It's determined by their actions in their life. What choices they make. It is determined by one's intentions. Intent to understand karma we need to understand the power of intention. And that's really what we're doing here. We're planting these seeds of intention. Intention are like seeds that we're planting all the time. And when they're mixed with other conditions, the seed will sooner or later bring certain results. They're little seeds that when they mix with other conditions, they bring certain results. For example... When I act with intentions that are loving and generous, 
the result will more likely bring happiness, like what we're doing here. When I act with intentions to cause harm and pain to myself and another, the outcome will likely bring more pain. And I think that's really the most simple way to understand karma, that my actions bring certain results. And clearly, the actions that you're taking by being here are bringing results that we may not even be able to comprehend the power of these results because of the wholesomeness behind these intentions. The intentions to cultivate love and care, compassion, joy, equanimity, to deepen wisdom and insight. Very powerful and wholesome intentions. We're not turning our minds towards uh, thoughts that are bringing more harm, more suffering, more pain but we're releasing those thoughts, substituting those thoughts, planting thoughts of of love, of joy, of harmony. This is from the Buddha's teachings on the Dhammapada. The the name of the teaching is the, the, the Dhammapada that Sylvia referred to the other night. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. We could replace that, say, with our intentions, we make the world. So thought and intentions can be used similarly. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. These are very powerful words. And this is one of the most important reflections in the Buddha's teachings and really shows us how we can transform our life, the power of transformation through the choices that we make, where we place our intentions. All beings are the owners of their karma. One of the problems is, is this can be actually quite misunderstood And it can be quite misused as well. For example, when I was in India, the uh, thinking about individual karma was really a problem because people would look at the situation of of the Indian people there oftentimes and say, well, it's just their karma. It's too bad. They must have done something wrong in a past life. And you can, when you hear that, you just, you just feel the pain of that. You know? And that's how we know that it's wrong. Because when we hear that, there's, if, if somebody believe that, believes that, you know that they would be disconnected from the situation. Oh, well, it's too bad. It's their karma. And this is not helpful. It keeps us separate if we just say, oh, yeah, it's just their karma. It keeps us from looking more deeply into the problem at hand. I had that same thought on September 11th. You know, the people who died in the Twin Towers. You know, it's like, well, is that just their karma? Yeah. No, as soon as, if, if, if I think that, or if I move that way, there's a disconnect. Oh, it's just their karma. 
You know, it doesn't have anything to do with me. It doesn't have to do with a bigger situation. It's just their karma. That's, that's not helpful. If we look back at the law of dependent origination, this happens because of that. We see that that kind of response is not so simple, that it's just their karma. This world is so interdependent that we cannot isolate one thing out. We can't isolate one factor out. For example, we can't say that 9-11 happened because of the evil people in Afghanistan. No. That's such, such a narrow, limited view of the way things happen in this world. The entire complex situation needs to be examined to see how these problems we are facing are occurring. The problems of terrorism, poverty, starvation, exploitation, the environmental abuses. And when we look at it from more of an interdependent uh, view, we can see how each one of us then has a responsibility for the way things are. I say maybe I like to think more of a collective karma, how we all are contributing in this karma together. It's not Sanjay's karma that he only has a tiny little bit of rice to eat for for lunch. I mean, it's not his karma because he did something wrong in this life. It's a a much bigger view. It's a much wider view. I am responsible for that as much as he is responsible. The Buddha says... Do not overlook actions merely because they are small. However small a spark may be, it can burn down a haystack as big as a mountain. Every action that we take has so much power behind it. And so we need to examine our actions filled with intentions for more happiness and harmony, for more unity, community. Our actions, our thoughts, intentions, actions, is there a movement of ill will, of judgment, of hatred, of cruelty that leads to more separation and more pain in this world? I believe that even one thought that arises in my mind, if I'm not mindful, if I don't pay attention, if I don't catch it, it can grow into speech, into action, that then creates some outcome that I might be sorry for. I have to be so vigilant, so mindful of every movement of my mind, of every movement of my heart, if I really want to take responsibility for the way this world is right now. Every thought is like a ripple that goes out on the pond. This whole uh, phrase, it's one that we could spend a long time on. This classic phrase, all beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. We need to take time with that, to reflect on what does that mean? 
How can I reflect on that and still stay in connection so I don't disconnect, pull back? But it brings up the question then, does, does that mean that all the good work that we're doing here, all the good wishes that we're sending out to people, does it mean that it actually isn't going to make much difference at all? You know, if, that, if their happiness really depends on their actions and not upon my wishes for them? You know? There's a lot of you know, interesting uh, twists and turns to all of this. Somebody in the staff room, when I was just, I was bringing this up to uh, some of the staff at lunch today, and someone in the staff room said, well, the way I look at it is that if I send you good wishes of metta, that's part of your karma. That's part of your good karma, you know, part of your good fortune. And I like to look at it that way. You know, if somebody's got me in their heart, got me in their thoughts, then there's something, you know, I'm doing something right. And we don't really know what effect it has. We don't, we can't, I don't think it's something that can be measured, something that we can really find out. They've done studies, they've done some tests, you know, do people get better if they're prayed for, that sort of thing. And I hear that then they keep dismissing the studies and, you know, they don't really know. So I think it brings us back into the mystery of things. We don't know. What I do know is that when I radiate out love and compassion, I know that affects my immediate field. And anyone who comes into that field is affected. And when I or somebody is angry or moody or you know, not feeling so good in themselves, that affects the field too. We know that. That's something we can say, yeah, that's true. And we know that being here has created a field of metta. I know I feel safe and protected here, and my sense is that you do too. It's what people are reporting, building up something here that's really beautiful, really powerful. And the last thing I want to point out about equanimity is that as we practice with feeling into letting things be just as they are, things are just as they are, we have to be a little bit careful about not getting too detached, too disconnected, which is the actually what's called the near enemy. It's what disguises itself as equanimity. Because we use this word detachment a lot in Buddhism, and I think it actually does get misunderstood. I think that the sort of the, the near enemy to Buddhist practice is, um, is a detachment or indifference or, or, or a tendency to withdraw and disconnect. But equanimity means to be detached yet connected at the same time. Interesting one. We'll have to reflect a bit on that. It means it's an allowing of what's happening with a full engagement, but without attachment, without investment in the way things happen. A full engagement without the investment in the outcome of the way things happen. 
Joseph Goldstein says it's, a, it's the passion in dispassion. Yeah. It's one of these where it, the language is quite paradoxical. So the near enemy, which we have to be watchful of, is the indifference, uh, being too withdrawn, being uninvolved, too cool. Sometimes I think that practitioners, Buddhist practitioners, are almost too proud of how detached they are. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not angry, you know, I'm not involved, I'm not reactive. But I think we can fall a little bit too back the other way. We can sacrifice connection. We can sacrifice really feeling and be engaged with our own humanity and others' humanity. Indifference is a voice that says, who cares? To be spiritual, to be spiritual, to be spiritual is to be unattached. What does anything matter anyhow? It's all an illusion. It's all empty and impersonal. It's going a little bit too far the other way. This is a misunderstanding that's out of balance with the way things are. Indifference arises from attachment to a state of mind that is unengaged, that is unbothered. There's some attachment in there. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want my mind to be disturbed. And it actually contains some fear of engagement, fear of intimacy, and fear of one's humanity. Indifference that disguises as equanimity can give us a temporary sense of peace. It certainly does feel peaceful, yet it reinforces the separation through withdrawal and disconnection. I think we can even find this near enemy of indifference, even in somebody who appears quite socially active or socially engaged, but the way it might manifest is actually a fear of emotional connection fear of emotional intimacy. So it's still playing in there somewhere. True equanimity is not withdrawal, but one is wholeheartedly engaged in life. It doesn't mean that there's no emotional response, but it means we're not as identified. We're not so caught up in the sense of I, a sense of me, the sense of mine, what I want, what I don't want. The far enemy, the far enemy, which is opposite of equanimity, is the reactivity that arises when we, are, when we have a strong sense of I, a strong sense of me in the situation. I hope this gives you some sense of equanimity. It's, it's, not, it's one of the more complex ones, I think you know, of the Brahma Viharas. And it's one that we really need to spend a little time with and reflect on and do the phrases and to see uh, what actually happens for us, what happens to the mind as we look at the ways that we get reactive, the ways we get angry, ways we get demanding, demanding, and just see what happens as we come into a place of acceptance and allowing of things to be the way they are. I've been walking on the land this week and noticing the trees that Sally mentioned the other night. Just a the, the, lot of the big old trees that are dying. And I can feel <clears throat> the sadness, the sorrow arising in my heart when I see the trees, the old trees along the road. And so I come into myself and say, 
things are the way they are. <clears throat> not that I'm, I'm not getting choked up. My, I'm just losing my voice. <clears throat> things are the way they are. And I need to really work with my mind so that I don't fall into deep states of sorrow and grief. Because if I do that, then I'm not going to have access to a deeper wisdom, a clarity, a connection with the trees, with the land. I'll fall into myself, into my own sadness, my own attachment for how I want things to be. And if I'm able to stay open and let my heart open, let my mind open, not fall into that deep sadness, then I'm truly in connection with the trees. And maybe as I stay in that connection, some wisdom will arise, some movement will arise for something that I might be able to do, some way I might be able to act, some way that I might be able to understand to help that situation. And I think that as we keep attentive to our heart, to our mind, keep it open, keep it clear, we're able to be available for some deep wisdom that will move our heart to action so that we can make some difference here on this earth in which we live. Let's sit quietly together for a minute. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.